9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome back to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks, and I am standing in this week as host for David Rothkopf, who claims to be on vacation. We will (laughs) talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes because I'm pretty suspicious. Uh, But with me today in the tiny virtual podcast studio on the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, we have Corey Shockey, Deputy Director General of the International Institute of Strategic Studies. Corey's with us in our in our third sub basement <laughs> only in spirit because in reality she is uh, busy witnessing the total collapse of the British government in London. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Um, I, Ed, I bet you wish you were witnessing the. I w- bet you wish you were there in person to see it all fall apart. No, I, I, I'm happy to be as far away <laughs> as possible. Uh, and finally, we have Heather Holbert, who is the project director uh, for New Models of Policy Change, uh, an initiative at New America. And and Heather, because she does new models of policy change, is going to figure out how we fix everything. So so let me start with the news of the moment, since this looks like, uh, as we're recording this on, on Monday afternoon, um, breaking news in the last hour. Uh, new problems for Theresa May and her government and, and new Brexit chaos. What on earth is going on? Um, Ed, do you want to start us off? And then Corey can give her her, her witness statements from the epicenter <laughs> of global chaos. Well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, re- I'll, rely on, I'll rely on Corey to give, um, to give more granular detail of this. I mean, the, the, the speaker, you know, who hasn't, unlike in the American system, the British Parliamentary Speaker is, you know, some, a neutral person um, renounces their party after their elected speaker. Generally, therefore, are elected um, in a bipartisan, multi-partisan way because they're seen as being fair-minded characters, good arbiters, capable of being umpires. And um, so, the speaker is normally a neutral figure in, uh, in in British politics and hasn't played a sort of genuinely. Um, interventionary powerful role, or at least an obviously powerful role, because a good speaker shouldn't obviously have any um, real power, um, appear to have any real power, since maybe, goodness knows, the 19th century. Um, but because nobody is in control, um, and and that becomes sort of even more comically and comically tragically apparent every day, the speaker gets more powerful every day um, because nobody's controlling the agenda. And so Theresa May, as you know, has twice tried to get her Brexit plan through the House of Commons, once in January, once in um, once last week. And both times was repudiated by margins um, that would have led instantly to a collapse um, of government had it been in a previous era. Um, and then said, well, I'm going to put the question to you again. Um, and uh, the speaker, speaker said, well, I'm sorry, but you can't keep 
he didn't he didn't say it's a definition of insanity, but you can't keep asking the same question over and over again and expecting uh, expecting to receive a different answer. And uh, so he has said precisely that you've got it to is, either. It is. It's like this sort of horrible Groundhog's Day event. It's true. You keep thinking maybe it's over and then you wake up and it's all starting again. Exactly. Theresa May keeps saying it's spring. There's no shadow or whichever way around it is. It's, um, it isn't spring. It's still winter and winter is deepening. Yeah. So I not only support everything Ed just said, well, I support everything Ed just said, including the emphasis on the comic nature of this. I have such a hard time getting interested in Brexit because um, it, it, it's, it's just boring, right? There are three basic options, choose one. And yet it's like watching that, that, uh, that part of Monty Python's movie, Life of Brian, where they're talking about the People's Front of Judea or the Judean People's Front, and people are intensively, passionately concerned and reject each other as splitists and nobody else can <laughs> tell the difference. That's actually what Brexit feels like to me. Um, but the, I agree with Ed that the speaker's judgment that essentially double jeopardy has been invoked, that um, that you can't try this again uh, without changing what people are voting for. And it really and is- Corey, there's, a, there's another Monty Python. There is another Monty <laughs> Python analogy that, that, um, that a Dutch politician actually used yesterday. He said <laughs> Theresa May was like, was like the knight um, trying to get across the bridge in um, in um, the the Holy Grail, you know, oh, and fabulous. both his arms are cut off, then both his legs are cut so off. So you two are only a flesh wound. You two are good on Monty Python, but Ed, Ed, admit it. When I said Groundhog's Day, you, I think you were thinking of the actual Groundhog, but I'm beginning to suspect you never watched the terrible movie with Bill Murray. I loved it. I loved it. Him, him you know, um, <laughs> pretending he'd learned French for his second go at Andy McDowell. No, I knew that movie backwards. <laughs> I'm going to take advantage of the two of your presence to in the in the secrecy of the of the sub basement um, to to ask a dumb question, which is, what is the most generous, most strategic, most sort of Theresa May is playing a bad hand explanation that one can give? for this current turn of events. Sort of if we if we were imagining that all of this was being controlled by a master puppeteer um, instead of outtakes <laughs> from the Monty Python movie that was never released, what would we say is going on here? Corey, That's I you, very, Ed. very ungentlemanly interrupted <laughs> you earlier. So I think you should answer that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the best interpretation I could come up with would be that uh, that her predecessor as the prime minister from the Tory party made a reckless decision to hold a referendum on a subject more complicated than the public could make a reasonable judgment on and produced an inconclusive result. And she's trying to make the best of that by 
by carrying out what the majority said they wanted when it wasn't entirely clear what the majority wanted. And the adolescent hijinks of so many members at the in the leading ranks of British governance right now, that the genuine colossal failure of statesmanship, uh, and and it takes something as an American just now to say that of somebody else's government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have company every now and then, though. Um, has meant that that she is just keeping turning keys in the lock. She has no authority over a party. She has no authority over in the negotiations with Brussels. She, what I can't figure out, what I hope Ed will answer is why didn't she at any point in time see the opportunity for cross-party majorities emerging in favor of what appears to be her own position, which is remaining in the European Union? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I think the answer to that is the the nature by which she became prime minister, which, if you'll recall, was a few days after the referendum. Cameron resigned, um, you know, walked off as if he'd done nothing wrong, quite happily, whistling under his breath. And there was a leadership contest. She won, but she won on the basis of saying, I'm now a convert, because she'd campaigned with Cameron to remain in Europe as part of his cabinet. And she won by saying, no, I'm actually now a true Brexiteer. And therefore she had to be more Catholic than the Pope, as it were. And she made all kinds of um, promises that, you know, um, no deal is better than a bad deal. Um, and Brexit means Brexit, you know, whatever, whatever that means. But she imprisoned herself, um, you know, within uh, her own self-created hostages to fortune um, because she had to prove to the Tory party that she was one of them, a romantic English nationalist. And um, I, I guess, you know, in so doing, she imported the Hastert rule into British politics, um, you know, which says only a majority of the majority um, um, can be acceptable. Um, in other words, bipartisanship is, is, is um, for, the, for the crows. Um, I, I have no interest in cross-party action. My job is to maintain the unity of the Conservative Party. And of course, David Cameron originally um, held this referendum to keep the Conservative Party intact because it was falling apart over well, Europe. Let me, let me ask um, you, Ed, can I, can I ask you to also talk about two questions that, again, you know, coming from the perspective of a American watching in total bewilderment, n number one, and we, we've asked this on other occasions, but I'll ask it again. Are, is there any path? What is the path to a second referendum? And number two, would that actually resolve anything? Or is the British electorate every bit as divided as it ever was on, on this question? And would the vote be different? And that's a, that's a very good question. And John Burke, the speaker, might just have made a second referendum um, more likely because the two things happened here. One is the May, you know, plan can't be put to a vote again um, uh, unless they substantially change the wording. 
Um, and two, Parliament also voted last week to request an extension of the stay of execu- a stay of execution, an extension of so-called after Article 50, which is March the 29th, which gives more time. And Europe is disinclined to, to give Britain more time unless it tells Europe what it's going to do with that time. And so I think a combination of Brussels and the Speaker of the House of Commons are going to force May to dig deeper and say, okay, I have a plan, a cunning plan. Um, and, and that cunning plan, you know, unless she's, unless she's suddenly going to endorse hard Brexit um, and all the chaos that would imply, is going to have to involve, I think, saying Parliament has no consensus. We must put this back to the people. What happens then is, is anybody's guess, is anybody. I mean, those of us who think Britain should remain um, like to think the last two and almost three years have been a process of educating the public about the complexities of um, the modern world and why Remain is therefore um, an optimal thing for Britain. But, um, you know, the the gap between perception and reality has always defined politics. And I suspect it could well have just got wider in the last three years rather than narrower. So it it would be anybody's guess if a referendum were held what the outcome would be, and who would frame the question, and how many options would the question right. give the voter? Right, right. <laughs> Stay, leave, leave, but in a nice way over the next three decades. Stay, but in a mean way over. Yeah, okay. Um, I think so... there are three <laughs> options: there's, there's stay, may, or D-Day. Um, May is May is May and stay is stay. <laughs> well played, Ed. Ed very well played. Ed, you could come up with the slogan for the new referendum, uh, get out the vote yes. campaign. Um, well, let me let me shift topics a little bit um, to another issue that has, I think, been obviously much on the minds of people all around the world, which is the horrific shooting massacre, really, in in, in New Zealand. Um, And I guess I have a couple of questions that I thought I would throw out to you. You know, one is, does it make sense to understand this as a, primarily as a you know, white nationalist motivation for this attack, or does this seem, you know, slightly narrower still, just as horrific, but but a sort of anti-immigrant rather than white nationalist specifically? Um, any thoughts on that, Heather? Well, the individual seems very much to have wanted us to understand it as white nationalist and not just anti-immigrant. Um, and I think it's really interesting, although horrific, that he he seems to have had kind of a, a global potpourri of, of inspirations, that he seems to have intimated that he was very much hoping that his actions would cause violent conflict in the United States, uh, which is an interesting, perhaps, misreading of how much the U.S. media cares about anything outside the U.S., but perhaps not. He also seems to have drunk deeply of Serbian ethno-nationalism, interestingly, both in people he references and in, um, actually, apparently he was playing Serbian nationalist music in his car as as the video opened. And I guess there's some stuff out this afternoon about him having traveled in Hungary in the last year. So I do think it's 
it's not just, although, as you said, that's plenty bad. It's not just the kind of anti-immigrant animus, but it's anti-immigrant animus connecting to sort of not just an idea of who the them are, which is the immigrant piece, but an idea of who the us is and needs and needs to be. And I think we've seen over the years that that there are these kinds of, of transnational connections, but they've never been so dramatized in such a such a grisly and, and actionable way. And in a way that really, frankly, made me think a little bit about other ideologies, cross-national terror networks that we've that we've seen in decades yeah. past. Can I let me pick up on that and, and ask uh, each of you to to talk about that a little bit. So after the September 11 terror attacks in 2001, the Bush administration very rapidly declared war, you know, war on terror, which then got sort of kind of modified over time to uh, war on, uh, you know, Islamic extremist terrorism. And even though that concept has been hotly debated in all kinds of ways, and, you know, and, and there, there were initial critiques, including critiques from both the right and the left, um, but including critiques that said, hey, you're lumping together groups that really don't actually have that much in common, except on a very superficial level. Um, and, you know, you're lumping together groups, some of which have primarily local or national motivations and goals with groups that have more global motivations and goals. And it's not, in fact, useful to do that. Uh, it would be much better to disaggregate and not speak in sweeping terms uh, about Islamic extremist terrorist organizations. Um, so here, I think that there's this temptation right now, and, and I, I feel it and I get it, to say, wow, we need to start talking about uh, global, global white nationalist terrorism or global anti-immigrant terrorism or both, or uh, you know, sort of European nationalist terrorism uh, on the right, and and see that as a global phenomenon, and not not be seeing it just as well. We've got we've got violent crazies in the United States. We've got some violent crazies over here, but they're all different. And really, to, to view it as a global phenomenon, and and there are ob obviously some compelling reasons to think about it that way. Not not least that this New Zealand uh, New Zealand uh, perpetrator. Uh, made it very clear that he saw himself as inspired by and vindicating and hoping for attention and support for um, other other white nationalists in other countries. Uh, I think there's some weird stuff suggesting some of the iconography uh, used also harkened back to forms of Russian nationalism. Etc. And he was motivated by everybody from you know French far right intellectuals to Serbians to Donald Trump. Um, and when you look at his actions, when you look at the Norway attacks in 2011, uh, when you look at the various violent attacks in the United States, that that I see the appeal of saying, hey, we need to talk about these as a global phenomenon. Um, but I can also see some reasons for caution. So so let me throw out to each of you in turn that question. Should we be thinking of this as global in a way? And, and, and if so, what would that mean for what we would do differently or not do differently than, than if we see it more as a, uh, a series of localized, uh, localized horrific attacks that, that may make superficial sort of pay lip service to some global movement, but that there just isn't one? 
Uh, let me so let I'll me start with you. Yeah, I was gonna start with you, Corey. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Don't be sorry. Um, <laughs> I will take a swing at that. I think it merits being treated as a global phenomenon because. Uh, white nationalist terrorists are feeding off each other, both in tactics they are, violent tactics they are employing, and in citing their motivations and, and the paths of their radicalization. I think in all three of those things, you see enough commonality to identify it as a global danger. Um, I don't think that means we need to treat uh, we need to treat them all the same. That is, just as um, you know, we had a problem with violent jihad. Have a problem with violent jihad. The point is to separate reconcilables from unreconcilables. To identify are there their off ramps are there ways to stitch people back into society that um, that mean you don't have to that mean that people aren't all becoming worse, more violent, more radicalized. So different policy prescriptions to handle. But your your other point I also think is really important and relevant, um, which is that we actually ought to, if we are not already be doing a lot of coordination on how we identify and share information with like-minded governments about people who are threats to elements in our society. And I hope we're doing a whole bunch of it. I, I, it seems to me we could do even more because, you know, we have been hesitant to call this what it is, to look it in the face and say, this is this is fascist idea. It's racial superiority. It's a religious marginalization of a kind that is fundamentally inconsistent with what we profess as a political culture. And the United States, at least, has a long troubled history with averting our eyes from race and religion-based violence. And we need to look it in the face and cooperate with others and deal with it as the problem of terrorism that it is. Several years ago, either in the late Bush administration or early Obama administration, the Center for Combating Ter Terrorism at West Point did a study, an academic study, showing that the greatest threat in the United States was right-wing nationalism. So this exact kind of white nationalist jihadi is is the cause of most terrorist deaths in the United States. West Point called it right over 10 years ago. Um, and they got a whole bunch of flack for con from Congress for it um, and had to quietly, quietly uh, diminish attention to the study. But they look more and more right as this problem grows in magnitude. What do you think, Ed? Um, I think that was a very good summary. I mean, I find myself wishing that, you know, these, these ISIS comparisons that are made, which are, you know, have, are quite useful in some respects, you know, that um, 
you know, there, there, there are there are lone wolves who get motivated by a sort of larger a, a larger sort of pattern there, and um, an organisation that's um, inspiring them, and a geology of previous events that they can build on and reference. And um, the difference being, of course, that there isn't an ISIS of the of the sort of pan-Western white supremacist movement. There are different groups. Um, some of them are sort of exist purely on the internet. Some of them are more formal. People like Steve Bannon have been trying to create sort of slightly more modern, slightly less extremist, sort of alt-right, populist internationals, etc. There are certain analogies there when you look at ISIS that are very useful um, for how to think about this. But I find myself wishing that, you know, like ISIS, if we could just get the white supremacists to gather somewhere on a territory roughly the size of Pennsylvania, you know, we, we might be able to we might be able to deal with them in a slightly more kinetic fashion, um, but I fear that's not going to that's not going to be the case. So we're going to, I think, have to think a little bit more deeply as societies um, about the combination of the fact that there are a lot of deracinated young men. It's particularly young men, as it is with ISIS, as it is with any such cause, who search for meaning in their lives through dramatic acts, and those acts might be, you know, a school shooting. They might not necessarily be, um, they might not necessarily be an explicitly political, ideological, white supremacist agenda. But we need to understand a lot more the kinds of language mm. um, um, that, they, that they use. I mean, I've quizzed, um, I was quizzing my stepson um, over the weekend, um, who was here for the weekend, about... Um, um, this um, Pupai Me character that um, the killer in New Zealand said you should go subscribe to him. I have to confess, I've never heard of him. He has 87 million YouTube followers. Uh, 87 million is, is an extraordinary universe. They're not all right. In fact, he's not even sort of expressly political. But he uh, moves in. He's... He, he's, he's um, he, he moves in and out of that field occasionally. And whether he's doing it um, sarcastically as an in-joke um, or signaling to people who don't take it as a joke or it, 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 all of this to me was like hearing about a new language that you know I'm aware of but just don't speak um, and, and unless we immerse ourselves in this um, we're, we're, we're going to we're going to misunderstand a lot of a lot of these conversations with a lot of these um, very complex sort of memeologies that are out there um, that, as I say, I, but for me are only, you know, I can, I can get it. I can get a GIF on Twitter. I get what that means. Um, but I didn't see Beppe the frog coming in 2016. I don't know what, still don't know what the origin of Beppe the frog was, but I do know that it acted as a signal um, to extremists whilst being, um, a harmless, sort of amusing, um, sarcastic symbol to to other people who weren't extremists. There's a complexity there I don't understand, and I hope that intelligence agencies, you know, are, are, are devoting resources to understanding them because they need to be understood. Heather, what's your take? Is what would we gain or lose if we thought about this in, in ways that are more parallel to the ways we've thought about uh, Islamic jihadist terror? Yeah, I think one of the things that this weekend 
demonstrates, um, which is something that we saw on the on the Islamist terror side, is that we were frequently surprised in one country at influences from elsewhere sort of showing up. Oh, look, ISIS is here too. Oh, look, Al-Qaeda has taken over this local group, which used to be totally manageable and no longer is. So our, our analysis kind of often missed the international connections. And I fear that's been true here. Um, you know, I think some of the examples that, that Ed just gave. Um, but I think the thing that we um, were confronted with over and over again is that you actually, as, as Corey said, you can't, you can't fight um, extremism as if it's all the same because every, you know, disaffected young man, every cell, every YouTube channel is, is unique and there isn't a, you know, and if we make, I think, the same mistake that we did make um, by hoping, frankly, that there were sort of broad brush kinetic solutions, um, we won't get very far. Now, so, I also, so Heather, you're I, basically saying that we shouldn't invade New Zealand because they've been harboring uh, terrorism. <laughs> well, thank God. I mean, you know, it, it's the one advantage of having a government that's somewhere, um, you know, between indifferent and actually hostile to pursuing these questions that there's no risk of invading the, the New Zealand. Although, you know, there was a there was some kind of act that killed three people in, in the Netherlands this morning, and we already are on the point of invading The Hague um, because of the International <laughs> Criminal Court. So, you know, I, I do, I don't totally rule that out. But, but no, the other thing I was going to say is that we're actually not, it, I mean, let's just be realistic. This government that we have right now is not really in a position to do much of anything. And I'm sure there are lots of, of smart folks inside who know about the work that Corey mentioned going back to the Bush administration, the grants that DHS was giving out to counter right-wing extremism and to study it in the U.S., which were cut off at the beginning of the Trump administration. So, so really, it's, it's a matter of studying on the outside and of thinking about how would you change the direction. But, but right now, there is, there is no U.S. government policy on, on right-wing extremism, and there, there isn't going to be one in the near future. Well, this I, I hesitate to ask this question because I, I realize that I think I know what your answers are likely to be. But uh, what should President Trump be saying about this? And how does that compare with what he is saying? He's saying a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff in the last few days. But how about on this one, Heather? Um, you know, we did finally get the sort of minimal necessary um, um, regret over over what had happened. It would be good to say yes, um, right wing or white nationalism is a serious problem, rather than saying no, it's not really a problem. Um, and it would be good to um, to hear more repeatedly uh, the kind of language that you know that you've heard from uh, the synagogue in Pittsburgh um, or from various other American leaders, or frankly from the New Zealand government. Instead of hearing, um, as Ed mentioned, or sort of lifting up or winkingly retweeting tropes and um, um, influencers who are actually sort of the leaders or fans or fanboys of, of these right wing groups, because in, in ways that, that, as Ed said, we often don't get ourselves because who the hell wants to spend time on those websites learning what their favorite phrases are? Um, this administration and its friends are sending messages of, of encouragement and something we know um, from history and from social science. I mean, one, one cites 
Hitler, but there are plenty of subsequent examples around the world that the way you go from a nasty speech to violence is to have nasty inciting speech recited over and over and over by people mm -hmm. who seem to be in positions to grant permission. So it's mostly, I, I don't expect this president to be sort of a hero of tolerance and coexistence, but I would love for him to stop with the inciting memes. Corey, you want to jump in on that one? Uh, yeah, I think the prime minister of New Zealand showed incredible grace and an incredible let's all put our arms around each other and draw strength from unity i think uh they one of the 7000 democratic presidential candidates the mayor of um notre dame <laughs> i thought wrote a really beautiful letter uh Re reaching out to all across the community. The thing that's most disappointing for me about President Trump is uh, a point my sister keeps making, which is that he has never once tried to unite the country. That thing that traditionally Americans who get elected president always do once they've been elected president, which is say, I speak for all Americans and I work for all Americans and, and let's move forward as a united country. President Trump's never done that. And for me, it scrapes rusty tines across my heart whenever there's a tragedy that the president can't be as big as the moment when it's actually not hard to do, right? We have a whole bunch of good models about how to do this well, and the president just chooses not to. Ed? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to improve on, on uh, Heather and Corey's answers. I mean, they, they, Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, I, I fully agree, was full of graciousness and, and um, said exactly the right things um, and uh, indeed moved to propose exactly the kind of legislation you need, which is, you know, we can talk at a grander philosophical, philosophical level about what provides the wellsprings of extremism, um, you know, in terms of alienation, in terms of technology, in terms of um, um, young men in particular. Um, but we, we, we should always first um, go to practical measures and banning, you know, semi-automatic weapons um, is such a no-brainer um, in any society um, that, uh, you know, I was very pleased to see that the, the New Zealand Prime Minister did not, did not stop at thoughts and prayers, but went straight on to semi-automatic weapons. And, and, um, and nobody in New and, Zealand uh, said, don't politicize this tragedy. No, that wasn't, that wasn't the response. I mean, I, I do, I believe there is a, you know, right. a fairly robust hunting culture there. Um, and there'll, there'll probably be some debates and there'll be some caveats to this legislation. But, you know, it's, it's a different kind of politics. Uh, they have the example, by the way, from Australia, um, you know, the last um, until recently when there was another there was another mass shooting. The previous mass shooting they'd had was in the late 1990s in Tasmania. And that led to very tight gun control. And there's only been one since then. Um, so, uh, of course, this this act was carried out by an Australian, but in New Zealand, which has lacks of gun, gun control. Um, but that's an even you know less probable scenario that Trump not only you know 
condemns all forms of extremism, including white nationalism, but then goes on to say, and we've got to take that, we've got to take the means of, you know, of destruction um, out of their hands um, by banning semi-automatic. That just sort of underlines what a fantasy scenario we're indulging in here, because this is not what, not what this president will ever do. He, um, he's perfected the art of sort of having his cake and eating it, which is giving a minimal con- condemnation um, uh, whilst signaling to you know his alt-right fans that he's not really condemning at all. He's always winking when he's condemning um, and he's equivocating. And uh, it's just enough for Fox News to be outraged on his behalf if anybody says that Trump you know, in any way is an, an, right. an inspiration for such figures. Um, well, and Trump himself tweeted, tweeted precisely that. Let me, uh, we were almost out of time for this podcast, but let me ask uh, one last question and maybe get some very quick answers, uh, thoughts from all of you. You know, one of the uh, things that has been highlighted by, by the New Zealand massacre uh, has been the difficulty both governments and and uh, social media and internet companies have in controlling the the almost instantaneous spread of information and misinformation. And we saw, for instance, uh, you know, YouTube uh, reported that they, you know, they were trying to prevent the the videos taken by the perpetrator from being uploaded and used as propaganda. Uh, uh, and they just couldn't do it, basically, because uh, they said literally about once per second, new versions of the video were being uploaded in with minor technical tweaks intended to prevent the automated automated software from uh, from identifying it as new versions of this video. Um, and this is obviously not a new problem. There are all kinds of ways in which... Uh, uh, the spread of other forms of extremist ideology uh, are facilitated by these technologies. But but the one of the questions that it raises, um, you know, there are technological questions, but there are also it it once again raises questions about what the responsibility of these huge multinational corporations that own, you know, YouTube, Google, for instance. Uh, and and others, what are their responsibilities to sort of the global public? We still tend to think of states as the subjects and objects of of international law and politics, but we live in a world where often these uh, these corporations, particularly in the sort of information operations front, um, have more influence than any government. Is there any takeaways from that? Uh, I'll start with you, Corey. Oh, excellent. Start with me on a subject. I am ill-prepared. Oh, no, no, no. We'll start with Heather. (laughs) (laughs) Heather, what do you think? I will, since I was braced to go first. um, (laughs) So I also am not an expert in this area, but I did have the experience of sitting up with some folks who are experts in um, white nationalist terrorism on um, Thursday night as the events unfolded. And um, my first thought on this is that somehow it appears that I saw the existence of that video before the good people in content management at Twitter and Facebook did. And, you know, I am a middle-aged person, just one me with my cell phone and also dealing with family responsibilities at bedtime. So 
I, I came away from this one feeling really skeptical about the tech companies' claims about how hard they're trying. Because, you know, anytime where I am seeing something and calling people up and saying, hey, don't you work with people who can make some phone calls to get this taken down? That's, that's not a, that's not a well-oiled machine or, or a cutting edge performance. So um, I don't pretend to know, and the point at which it was being uploaded slightly tweaked once a second was long after this initial moment where it first appeared and then people started saying, hey, wow, this is here. And then holy crap, this is here. So so it's it certainly at minimum, I think you can say that um, the tech companies are not ready. They are still not ready to be used as the alleged shooter had seemed to have worked very hard to figure out how to use them in, in exactly this way. Comments from Ed or Corey? Yeah, I I will chime in, which is that I I think the large social media companies have have gotten away so with so much recklessness in our free societies by not being regulated and with the kind of reach that they have we need to actually have a big public conversation about what responsibilities they have to us, even though they are a private platform, um, because they are effectively censoring speech somewhat when they choose to on the issues that the particular founders care about at any given point in time. And I just don't think that's a good enough answer given their importance in our political debates. So I, I think the time is long overdue for congressional debate and regulation of the large social media platforms because they are unquestionably having deleterious effects on our body politic. Ed, any last words? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. The Section 230 of the Communications Decent Decency Act, which essentially absolves the platforms from from um, uh, liability for what they carry, has to be has to be scrapped. They have to be liable, legally liable for what they carry. They have to be treated as publishers. There's nothing anti-freedom about that. The free press um, are liable for what they carry on their platforms. That doesn't make us unfree. It means that we hold responsibility for what we publish, and so should they. Um, as Corey just mentioned, you know, when they want to censor something, they can. You know, when was the last time you saw a female nipple on Facebook? You never see a female nipple on Facebook because <laughs> I never looked for standards. them on Facebook, Ed. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, you know, I, 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 I was told by a friend. I read a book about it, something like that. <laughs> um, uh, my point is, they can. They can enforce the standards they want, and they do. It's just that they don't want to enforce the standards that um, fuels extremist, right. um, extremist sharing because the algorithms you know, are geared to maximize greater and greater outrage because that's where the traffic is. That's where the revenues are. That is the business model. Mm, it mm -hmm, is the business mm -hmm. model. Um, so um, uh, it's not a question of you know, when, when you hear Zuckerberg and others and the YouTube saying it's really difficult, we're trying. Don't believe them for a second. It's not difficult. Okay. Well, I think that is the last thing we have time for in this episode, uh, although that was such an interesting conversation that I hope we'll continue it 
uh, again another episode. So thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Heather, uh, for for being with us while our fearless leader is on so-called vacation. Um, thank you for your <laughs> wonderful leadership, Rosa. You're great. I, thank just, you, Rosa. I'm like, Thanks, I'm like the Rosa. Vice President Pence of Deep State Radio. <laughs> no, 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 no. We will not, no, we will not that, have that. You are Although, neither dim-witted nor up, are you a bigot, Rosa. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank but you. But when we start it. trying to come up with other vice presidents for Rosa, um, I, I, I think you, I mean, before oh, we have to nominate you, Joe that. Biden. I think we need a new metaphor. Yeah. Harry Truman. There. Harry Truman. Well, it's time to end this episode for sure now. Now that we're on to dim bulb vice presidents. Um, we will be back again in just a few days with another terrific episode of Deep State Radio. So stay with us and visit us uh, on our website. Join us as a member. And we look forward to being back with you again in just a few days. Thank you, everyone. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.